a forest garden is a type of agriculture where we're trying to be as tuned in to that forest as possible and mimic it and work with it while producing food. So like the Indians before who lived here and, and indigenous peoples and forest regions around the world, we're active participants in the ecosystem or trying to relearn how to do that because we have forgotten or destroyed a lot of the information about how to do that well. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Good Dirt listeners. We find ourselves here at the end of another month. And in the concluding days of our Slow Living Challenge for this year, which if you've missed it, it's not too late. You can still sign up at the link in our bio and you will receive the downloadable calendars and you can even access the calendars from the previous weeks of Slow Living prompts for the Slow Living Challenge. That'll be accessible until the end of February. So you just have a couple more days if you're listening to this on the day it comes out. Also, the Almanac, our online membership platform, is open and always open. If you are interested in this sort of thing and exploring slow living and community and having a warm, open place to share and get feedback and ask questions about all things slow living and sustainable living, we're there for you whenever you want to jump in. Yeah, and before we sign off on the Slow Living Challenge altogether. We still do have some wonderful stories from those of you who've been willing to share some of your experiences over the past few weeks. This came off of Instagram. This is shared in our stories. And I related to this one because I've spent many hours on a bus in a foreign country. It says, I'm spending 26 and a half of the past 32 hours on a bus and we aren't even there yet. My head's aching, my legs cramping, and all I want Starbucks latte. While I was thinking about this, I received the perfect reminder from the Good Dirt Podcast. They are leading a slow living challenge this month, and this week the focus is cultivating appreciation. As I listened, it hit me. I'm spending nearly two days driving on a bus through the northeastern Mexican jungle. Wait, what? I'm literally watching a real-time movie out my window, and while I'm exhausted and sore, this is the freaking opportunity of a lifetime. Perspective. I'm so appreciative of this experience. Wow, I love that. (laughs) I know. I also relate to that so much in so many ways. It's almost like anytime you have a minor inconvenience, it can feel like a big inconvenience in the moment. I actually kind of love those moments because while my impulse might be like to get really annoyed by something, it's a good opportunity to like zoom out for a second and be like, wow, 
this is really like not a huge problem at all. And actually my annoyance with it is just a reflection of how privileged I am. Yeah. And what she says here, it's all about perspective. Yeah. I get this a lot. I mean, I haven't been in many airports recently, but in a previous life, I was in a lot of airports a lot. And I, you know, I'm no stranger to airplane troubles, <laughs> not like on the airplane, but mostly like flights being delayed or being rerouted or things like that. And I think that the airport is a really interesting place to watch people. Yeah. <laughs> to see how people react in crises. I want to say crises, although the whole point of me saying this is like, it's never actually a crisis. Your plane's delayed. It's super inconvenient, but it's not a crisis. But a lot of people think that it is. Anyway, so an older version of me, I used to get really frustrated by that stuff. But I've gotten to the point where I almost like these moments because it makes me be like, wow, I'm so lucky and this is fun and in many ways entertaining to just like see how the full range of humans' ability to like accept certain situations or not accept them and how they act in them and how they're treating each other and how they're treating the airline people. It's just so interesting to me. Anyways, that's what made me just think. That's what this made me think of. Yeah, it's an opportunity to practice so many of the things we're talking about. Yeah. Also, give the example of an airport or a delayed flight or something. When I find myself being annoyed in that situation, I try to back up and say, well, you really want them to fix the airplane. That's true. (laughs) Before we get in it. And isn't it amazing that we can get on this thing, this metal thing and fly through the air and be across the country in a few hours? I know. That's so funny. (laughs) And like we're annoyed that we can't get there faster. (laughs) Like you're in a middle tube, people. <laughs> Let him fix it. Yeah, I just think it's such the, the perfect new age. Like the technology is just so insane. It's just beyond all of us. Yeah. And yet we accept it as just a given. And so it's a really good opportunity to be like, wait a second. <laughs> so I love some of these other comments that we had on a post last week too. We asked people to tell us about what slow living means to them. And I just love some of these answers. I'm going to read them. Living slow means living with intention. It means taking the time to notice things and to live from a posture of gratitude. That's from Jerusalem McGreer. Thank you so much for sharing. It was beautiful. Here's one from Dirt, Roads, and Grace. She comments, slow living means being intentional in everything as much as we are realistically able. It's guarding our time and calendar from succumbing to the normal hustle and bustle of our culture. It's pausing to appreciate the beauty around us and seeking to create beauty where it is lacking. It's truly so many different things to so many different people, but these are a few things that it means to me. And then this is from Lauren Puckett. Hey, Lauren. I don't know if she listens to this podcast, but I know her. So she sweetly commented, slowing down for me has been intentionally taking moments throughout my everyday life just to be more personally present. Whether it's using the five senses during the dishes or taking five minutes on my back porch during the nice days to watch the birds, taking notes of their textures and sounds. How does this all make me feel? That's so good. I love that five senses doing the dishes thing. I haven't tried that. So I just love all these stories and shares. They just really make me happy because in all of them, it shows that people are being encouraged either to do something positive and intentional that they might not have done if they hadn't taken the moment to slow down or that they're just thinking more about their choices and observing their own feelings and behavior. It's all just really good stuff. Yeah. So we have so enjoyed the challenge this year. We will miss it 
We might even repeat it, but we encourage you to keep sharing your stories with us. And there's still time to grab the Slow Living Challenge calendar. The link in our show notes, if you haven't done it yet, you're welcome to do it on your own time. And you can always join us in the Almanac. As I mentioned before, enrollment is always open and we'd love to have you in there. It's hard to believe the Slow Living Challenge is almost over. And that means February is almost over. And here we go into March and everything that comes with it. Especially my birthday. Yeah, that's the main thing, of course. everyone. (laughs) It's always a highlight of the month. And then close on its heels comes spring, which has all of us thinking about getting our gardens going. Yes, and today's guest is certainly a gardener, but his work is a very specific kind of garden. Lincoln Smith is the founder of Forested, which is an edible food forest garden in Bowie, Maryland, which is not far from us here in D.C. He is here today to tell us all about the concept of forest gardening and how his project is going now that it is in its 10th year. Lincoln started Forested LLC to develop and share research in forest gardening, and he teaches or co-teaches many of the courses that take place on the site. He also creates and designs forest gardens for homes, commercial properties, and public spaces. He's passionate about production and ecosystems and brings a background in agronomic science and sustainable landscape design. He's a regular speaker on forest gardening at venues such as University of Maryland, the U.S. Botanic Garden, and the Maryland Master Gardeners Conference. The 50-year vision is for the forest garden ecosystems to sustainably supply a large portion of all food and forest products that people need and use for healthy living. At Forested, there is a special focus on the eastern United States where the Forested Research Garden is located. They also offer education and services with worldwide application. We really welcome the opportunity to talk to Lincoln, a visionary in the essential work of figuring out how we're going to move forward in feeding ourselves and our communities in a way that's healing and regenerative for the planet. We really appreciate Lincoln as an outstanding example of all the thought leaders and creative thinkers and doers that are out there finding solutions to these complex issues. And of course, as a champion of good dirt. Yes. So here is Lincoln Smith here to tell us about all of the wonders of forest agriculture. My name is Lincoln, and I grew up in Bowie, Maryland, and I think I came to have an interest in the land from seeing rapid development. It's happening here in Bowie outside of D.C., but it happens everywhere around the country. And I was sad to see the forests that I played in get knocked over for new developments. was a pretty angry kind of environmentalist for a while as a result of that. I returned as an adult having left Bowie. And from where I am, there had been new shopping centers built, occupied and then abandoned and larger ones built close by even in the 15 years that I was away. So I didn't like a lot of things about the way we're using land and interacting with it. But I do like people a lot, and I became more and more interested in how do we get people to have a better relationship with the land, which for me means the forest, because we're in a forested ecosystem. And after working in landscape architecture for a while, trying to design ecologically sound landscapes, I came to forest gardening as the most hopeful form of environmentalism that I had encountered. It's a, as an idea that says people can live better lives and eat better and restore the ecosystem 
altogether if we reintegrate our lives with the forest by growing forest gardens. Did you study forest agriculture or did you just sort of self-educate yourself? And How were you even introduced to the idea and decide, hmm, I'm going to do this, besides being motivated? Sure. My training was in landscape design at the Conway School, which is an ecologically oriented landscape design school. Forest gardening, I heard a lecture by Dave Jackie, who wrote a big double volume book about forest gardening. And I read that. And no easy task, by the way, but it really inspired me and got me thinking. And after some years of trying to convince all of my clients and my old job to do forest gardens and not getting very many takers, I eventually left off the deep end and became a full-time forest gardener. Okay. So you get in an elevator with someone and they're like, what do you do? And you say, I'm a forest gardener. And they say, what's that? What's your elevator pitch? What does that mean? We grow all kinds of fruits and nuts and mushrooms, anything that may grow in this climate with the dual goal of feeding people and restoring a healthy forest ecosystem. Now that as someone who I'm pretending I'm someone who's like never heard of this, that might seem silly and like it wouldn't really work and it wouldn't really like feed the amount of people that like a regular garden would. So what do you say to that? There are plenty of things that we have to figure out with regard to this, but the food production potential is there. Even crops like acorns and chestnuts, some foods that we completely ignore, were very important to the Native Americans in there, produce as much food per acre as wheat does, which is the world's most widely grown crop. Amazing. That's crazy. So we need to learn how to use this. Of course, commercializing it, industrializing it is not necessarily even the way we want to go. We live in an industrial food system that we're lucky to have. It delivers many people tons of food, but it is also displacing ecosystems and losing soil and biodiversity at a crazy rate. So what we're doing is trying to help discover how can we do forest-based agroecology as the way to feed people. And we are, we're producing a good amount of food at this point. We're certainly not feeding the world, but I think potentially the movement can grow to the point that it's making a big dent in the ecological restoration that is needed and feed people better and more fun. That is so cool. Thanks for the hot seat. You did a great job. <laughs> we put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, now the elevator door opens and you can go <laughs> and you can say bye. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I want to dig a little deeper and have you talk about the term forest. I think in most of the minds of us in Western civilization, North America, a forest means a dense tree canopied area that doesn't have much light and the ground's all covered with things. But in true application, forests don't have to look just like that. Is that true? Oh, sure. Forests are extremely varied, different ages, different communities of plants. And with forest gardening specifically, we do try to make sure that we're designing it so that light can get down to the lower layers of the forest. So you have plants of all different sizes growing together from the tiny little herb at down at your feet up to the towering tree. And with forest gardening, you can approach it in a number of different ways, but we want our berry shrubs, like our blueberries, for example, to be able to fruit in the long term. So we don't want a closed canopy of humongous nut trees just shading out everything. So we try to space those trees so that you can still get your light coming into your persimmon trees underneath and the blueberry bushes and stuff like that in the long term. Other people might go into an existing very dark forest and focus on growing mushrooms or shade-loving herbs that are nutritious like nettles and fiddlehead ferns and stuff like that. So there are approaches you can take in a really dark environment. For myself, though, when I design a forest garden, 
I'm trying to keep light in all the layers. So you're talking about building a forest garden from the very beginning with that in the design. So what would be the definition of forest in that application? Hmm. Well, forest, I guess, is a ecological community dominated by trees in a sort of biome sense. And a forest garden is a type of agriculture where we're trying to be as tuned in to that forest as possible and mimic it and work with it while producing food. So like the Indians before who lived here and and indigenous peoples and forest regions around the world, we're active participants in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We're trying to relearn how to do that because we have forgotten or destroyed a lot of the information about how to do that well. And so in that way, how are you finding this out? Is it trial and error? Are you reading? Are there any documents that the Native Americans might have left or anything like that that you can reference? There is a good store of ethnobotanical literature that you can use to learn these things. And then, yeah, we try everything. By personality, I like when I take in a new idea that I really love, I want to go try it out. So it's a nice playground. I have this 10 acre site where I can try out a lot of things. An example of this is the Native Americans a very long time ago, domesticated a root crop, high protein potato kind of a thing that most people have never heard of at this point, but it's called groundnut or Latin name is Apios Americana. Yeah, And they spent a lot of time, you know, who knows how many generations developing this into a pretty cool crop. And more recently, Louisiana State University had a program now defunct where they were trying to collect and develop this crop further. And I managed to get some of these tubers and I'm growing them at the forest garden to see how they do. So you mentioned the forest garden and your 10 acre playground. Tell us about that. Tell us about the evolution of that, how it got started and how far you've come with it and all of those things. Yeah, we started in 2012. So we're nearly 10 years old and a little more than half the site was a cornfield up until we started the project. The other half is an existing tulip poplar forest. So we're working toward forest garden in both of those areas. We're growing just about any crop that may possibly work in this climate, in this soil. But we emphasize the things that are native here, especially the things that are native right on site. So that has meant, for example, that persimmons have become a major focus for us because we find wild persimmon trees popping up on the site by the hundreds. So we've made a point of trying to collect all the best varieties of persimmon that we can and graft some of those onto the wild persimmons to say, hey, the ecosystem is offering us persimmons. Can we take that in a direction where it's a little bit easier to use for people? Like if we graft that tree, it will make a larger fruit, a sweeter fruit with less seeds in it, but it's still a persimmon. So we're trying to pay attention to what the ecosystem is offering. And this does require a approach. If you go into a project with a set in stone plan of what you're going to grow, like I'm just going to grow peaches, like peaches, the market is telling me the peaches are the most profitable thing. We're going to grow those and do whatever it takes. And then you find, well, peaches are subjected to all kinds of pests in this environment. So then you're pretty soon you're spraying pesticides like crazy and trying to. And meanwhile, there's a bunch of persimmon trees in the ground that you never saw because you're mowing them down around your peach trees all the time. So by going a little slower, we can learn and and, uh, respond to what the ecosystem is doing. And I can definitely see it's going to take more than the rest of my life Mm -hmm. working on this, which is one of the fun things about it. That's an incredible example too, especially because I love persimmons. So that's like really fun and exciting to think about. And I have a couple questions. Do you guys have pawpaws too? Yeah. The first phase of the garden is pretty high and dry. So Mm -hmm. the pawpaws that I planted have been slow to start uh, fruiting, but they, they are fruiting now. 
We recently added a wetlands section. Uh, we extended the lease with the landowner down to the valley, and that's prime persimmon territory. There's no pawpaw territory. So we'll be planting pawpaws in there down by the stream where they love to be. So back to persimmons a minute. In our area, I have just this season been able to recognize those little persimmon seedlings. And you're right, they're all over the place. Mm. So I tried, there was an area that I was doing some plant rescue and I tried to dig a few of them up and bring them over onto my property and they didn't take. I, I don't think they like transplanting. Even in my experience, maybe you can give me some hints on that. But I do have a persimmon tree that I bought, and they're bigger than these native ones, and as you say, less seeds and sweeter. Do they act like natives in that they attract the biodiversity that you want when you're nurturing your natives? Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. What variety do you have, by the way? Do you remember? I do not. They're it, like more of an edible size. Well, uh, with persimmons, you have American persimmons, which mm-hmm. is the native one, and you can get selections of that. Like You wouldn't believe it, like where, where the normal seed wild persimmon might be an inch across a selection called proc can easily be two inches across Uh and low in seed so there's lovely selections of american persimmon where it is that species then there's the asian persimmon which is a different species but you can still graft it onto american rootstocks probably that will have less value as a wildlife plant Mm -hmm. but potentially more or at least useful value to humans so for me, it's it's about striking a balance. Yeah. So I'm glad to graft some Asian persimmons onto some of these American persimmons. And I also let some of the wild American persimmons grow as is because those are probably the best contribution to wildlife diversity. Mm-hmm. You bring up a good point about when you try to be a purist about everything, you kind of limit yourself in a, you know, your application or function of what you're trying to accomplish. And here we have, you know, a whole planet full of people that want to be fed and we need to feed people without killing ourselves by ruining the soil, etc. and all those things. So we do have to make adjustments and compromises as we go. And so yeah, so I have a perfectly healthy and prolific, probably non-native persimmon tree in my garden and it's the food is delicious and wonderful in it. We're enjoying it so much. So it's a good thing. Yeah, it is. And you can grow it without spraying anything on it. Absolutely. It's it's happy here. So like the fact of the Native American, this is the persimmon region. It really is. And that's one thing like you think about when you travel to different parts of the world, maybe you're traveling in Europe or something, maybe you're traveling in Italy and enjoying how they have the olive culture there, um, Mm -hmm. which does have its problems, of course. But we really, I think, could do well to tune into the things that this region is really good at. Like this region just produces a ton of persimmons. We barely know what to do with them. We have yeah. very little culture built around persimmons. So they're so good. But discovering that that culture is is really fun. So I grow the plants and then I enjoy partnering with chefs and people that are way better at the culture and fun side of it than and they come up with all these cool things to do. Like when we had our latest brunch at the garden, the chef did a parfait, which I wouldn't have thought of, but she took some yogurt and she layered it with persimmon and with cooked elderberry of all things, mm, but, which are two things that are, that grow in. The, and it was so good. And I would have never thought of it. Oh yeah. She used a little bit of our honey too. Um, oh, so wow. it, was, it was a really delightful thing to eat, which would never have occurred to me, but like, that's really important to me because this land is really trying to offer us persimmons. We're like, I don't know. I eat apples and bananas. Yeah. Yeah. Bananas definitely don't grow here. Apples barely grow here. Um, I mean, 
Some people have more luck or if you spray the right things on them, but yeah, let's work on some of these native fruits. And in, in terms of eating regionally and seasonally, like you say, the land is saying, here are all these persimmons and the culture is so focused on pumpkins, which can grow here, do grow here, and apples. So it's kind of a shift in perspective. Oh my gosh, how cool would, would it be if it was persimmon spice latte <gasps> season? Well, I made one. Oh man. I actually made one. and I <laughs> There you go. We had a, an article with a series of recipes for pumpkin spice. And I actually plugged the persimmon into the pumpkin spice latte. It tasted pretty much the same. And it's yeah. very uh-huh. similar to pumpkin. Yeah. Maybe even sweeter. I think sweeter. Can you tell us about some more things that happen at the food forest? It's called Forested, correct? That's right. Yes. Yep. Yeah, just kind of like how people can interact with you if they're local or even not local. I don't know if you teach classes or any of that. Yeah, well, we have tours every month during the season. First Saturday of every month, we have a tour of the garden, which is fun because there's always something different going on. Teach permaculture classes, offer forest to table dinner events, and have a really fun volunteer community of different people that come take care of the garden and take home some of the produce. So it sort of operates like a park or like a nature center or something? Yeah, really does. Or like a garden, sort of mutually cared for garden, arboretum. It does produce a good amount of food at this point, most of which goes to the people that take care of the garden, which is fine with me. We are looking at if we can get the labor that we need this coming year to relaunch our CSA, which was really fun last time we did it. And now we have a lot more yield. So excited about that possibility too. And when you were like back when you started this, I'm just interested in in how it has evolved. And did you envision all of this or has it changed 12, 15 years ago? Would you have thought this is what you would be doing? Some of it, yes. I I knew that I wanted to grow a forest garden and spread the practice of forest gardening by whatever means I could and try to make a living from it. Mm -hmm. And the means of that wasn't as important. The core was to discover how to do forest gardening in this climate. And I did come to it from a sort of a horticultural point of view. How do you grow a forest garden? Mm -hmm. I've come to recognize over time that the cultural and economic side of it is also really important. Like there are cultural and economic forces that will shape your forest garden. Yeah, wow. So you can't ignore those completely. But I certainly came to it with the garden being the main thing. And and what I've discovered over time is that people and and other people have spoken to this much more eloquently than me. And and probably you guys run into the same thing. The economy right now delivers very cheap food. So people's perception of value around buying food is they expect to pay nothing for for Mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. I don't think my forest garden is not going to participate in the commodity food market, but people are happy to pay for dinners and classes and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. That's, that's what people expect to pay for. And, mm-hmm. and in terms of making a living from this garden, that seems to be the way to go. So people can come to the garden, work there and take home food, which is a fine model. And we just don't even touch money with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of generating revenue, that seems to be true. And we do sell some produce. We sell eggs and mushrooms occasionally. And we are hoping to launch the CSA again. But yeah, it's tough to make a living as a farmer, even if you're yeah. a real farmer. If you're a real commodity farmer out in the Midwest, say, those folks are often just barely profitable. This is, mm-hmm. Even with all the subsidies, 
-hmm. from the government on every level. And many of them might even have an off-farm job while doing that farming thing. So I don't don't mind too much if we don't demonstrate that forest gardens can produce pecans more cheaply than a giant monoculture pecan orchard, you know, irrigated down in the desert southwest. Um, that's, That's not quite the goal. You've just described a direct parallel to the clothing industry. Yeah. Five years ago when we started, we produced a line of clothing and out there in the marketplace, it was very expensive. And we found that people didn't understand why. And so now we've sort of shifted into more of this, it's more of a demonstration and education thing, you know, with this podcast and we do have events. And so it's been kind of a parallel path for us in, in your concept. And we want people to understand the impact of our industrial goods the things that we use every day and to know that there are alternatives if you look and if there will be more alternatives if you're willing to choose those things and support the efforts and make it more mainstream and and all these things which you already know Mm -hmm. preaching to the choir here but you mentioned a little bit ago that you offer your permaculture design course I think on your you have the course out there at Forested so where does forest gardening and permaculture overlap? Are they is are they just two different words for the same thing? Are there nuanced differences? I thought you might talk about that a little bit. Sure. I see forest gardening as the main way to do permaculture in forested ecosystems. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't do forest gardening in the prairie ecosystem. I don't think. That's a grassland. You could to a certain extent, but the land is going to tend to produce prairie there, not forest. So it's not for everywhere in the world. But in terms of the core, one of the main core principles of permaculture is to work with the land, you know, care for the earth, care for people and return the surplus. And the earth is trying to produce a forest here. So we should work with that. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit smaller than permaculture, but it's, I think, the biggest part of it for forested ecoregions. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that you had, at one point in your career, spent some time and energy trying to convince people that they should do forest gardens in their yards. Do you think that's a feasible thing? Do you feel, at this point, with all this experience, maybe not that you would do this, but if you went back to those, do you feel like you could go talk to people about this more or in a different way since you have more experience doing it. Do you think this is something realistically that people could do on their own? Yeah, it's talk about it. it's not very practical for a large scale presently, but how practical is it on a very small scale? Quite practical. And a lot of people are doing it with great success. Right now, all I do is design forest gardens. I, I won't do regular landscape design. And there, there is a growing market for it, which is really fun and exciting. Oh, cool. So you are doing it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sweet. My old job was in a residential sort of high-end landscape architecture firm. And those clients were coming for a landscape design in general. And I was trying to be like, well, do you want to do a little forest gardening as part of yeah. this project? They weren't there in the market. They weren't familiar with the right. the idea of they the forest garden. They weren't your target audience. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And, and, you know, I learned a ton from working in that company and yeah. I'm grateful for it. But yeah, no, there is a, an increasing demand. And I think a backyard scale is a great way to do a forest garden. And for someone who might be listening who's really interested, what kinds of things do they need to look for or where do they start? Well, my website, forested.us, you can download an illustrated design guide, which is a distillation of forest garden principles, how you put it together, uh, how you design a garden. There are great books out there too in longer form. But what this is, is sort of the shortest form with little cartoony illustrations, because that reflects the way that I think. So that's available for download on my website. And then I also, if person happens to be in the, you know, like in the mid-Atlantic region, we keep track of the, of all the plants that we try growing here in Bowie. Mm-hmm. We keep track of the ones that seem to be doing the best and we like the fruit and they're not bothered by diseases and whatever. So 
We have a list of probably about 60 species so far that are our favorites. And that's like a, just a Google spreadsheet that I can send anybody the link to so they can look at what we've tried and see if they want to try any of those same things. Some forest gardens are rather claustrophobic and and, and, and hard to find your way through. And yeah. for me, a forest garden has to be a habitat for people, like a very pleasant, understandable habitat. Mm. You don't want to be shoving your way through wet branches all the time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. trying to make your way around a forest garden. So, so there is a certain amount of maintenance involved. It's really fun. And you can definitely start small, start with a couple of just a couple of plants that you're most excited about. Don't overplant right away. Just mm-hmm. grow something. And when you eat your first fruit that you've grown, then you'll be totally addicted and, and we'll be able to go back. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's an imported persimmon tree, it's still a yeah. thrill. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We wanted to ask you about sort of some of the biggest challenges with this project. It can speak specifically to Forested and what you're doing, or maybe to someone also, because we're kind of having this parallel discussion about like someone who's wants to be doing this in their backyard. What are some of the big things they might need to overcome? For the backyard forest gardener, space very often tends to be a problem for people. My particular backyard is where I started forest gardening and most of the back is a septic field where I can't even grow any trees. Oh my gosh. I quickly ran out of space to grow trees. To that, I would say I've had a surprising number of examples of people that can grow on their neighbor's properties. Like if, they, if you're in a neighborhood full of big lawns and you have a decent relationship, a lot of neighbors are like, oh, you want to plant some fruit trees on my yard? You know, be my guest, whatever. Cool. A lot of people do that successfully. Occasionally you'll have disagreements over aesthetics. Yeah. You may have heard this story. Uh, I forget which of my plant books this was told in, but there's this woman in Germany who was maintaining a meadow in her front yard mm-hmm. as an increased habitat. And they really need that in Germany from the way I understand it. It's uh, if a friend just back from there and saying, you know, they have, they're making progress, but they need their biodiversity, just like anywhere. This woman was fined by the local authorities, whatever body that was every year and chose to just pay the fine yeah. rather than remove that meadow from her front yard. And however much time went by, maybe decades, and the culture came around and in the end she received an award for her front yard <laughs> possibly from the same body that had been levying the fines or who yeah. anyway yeah so you do run into situations where there's a homeowners association or something that is looking for a certain look which is usually mow and blow Mm-hmm. So home forest gardeners do need to be sensitive to those things unless they're wanting to take on that sort of cultural negotiation. <laughs> so I do take note of all the different plants I grow. I kind of take note of ones that are sort of good front yard plants yeah, mm-hmm. because oh, they behave in a certain way and look a certain way. Like certainly black raspberries are not in that category. It's yeah. a sort of a wild scrambling bramble that is not going to please necessarily the uh, clipped hedge people. Uh, whereas, um, you know, tea camellia, for example, I love growing black tea uh-huh. as a very well-behaved evergreen plant. You can put it by your front yard and, and make your own black tea English breakfast from that. And, and, and while also showing a look to the neighborhood that that will not raise eyebrows. I did not know that is native. No, it's not. No, but there I is another one I can mention to you. The Yalpon holly is our only native caffeine. And I highly recommend that plant really? as a beautiful plant. It's related to yerba mate and makes a very pleasant, slightly sweet tea. If you've ever had mate, it tastes quite a lot yes. like that. So in the Yalpon holly, I've, I've heard of that a lot. That's your, your regular landscaping front yard holly tree, right? 
right? Uh, there are a lot of different species. Yeah. And this one is a little bit hard to get a hold of in our region. It's a lot more available in the trade down in Florida. The native range of this plant runs from, as I understand it, the coast of Maryland all the way down to Florida and the Gulf Coast of Texas. So we're at the very tip of the northern end of its range. Most of these plants were selected from like Florida bushes. Yeah. And if you try to grow those up here, they don't do very well. Even though it's the same species, it's a different ecotype. So you can't just bring the ones from the trade in Florida and grow them here. So I found there's one called Shadow that was selected from Northern and it does absolutely fabulous here. And I'm starting to propagate it because it's very hard to find. Yeah. Well, are all hollies edible? No. No. Okay. You can't eat berries from hollies. No, no, no holly berries are edible. They are good bird food. Yeah, yeah. And the leaves of the Yalpon holly and its cousin, the Yerba Mate holly down in South America, those are the only two that I know are, are okay. usable as a tea. Okay, so don't go plucking your holly tree, people. Right, no, not the prickly, the regular old prickly American holly. I'm not aware of an edible use for that one. Good, good uh, habitat value, evergreen screen. Yeah. You know, if you need a plant that will provide some screening, but not lose its lower, like if you plant like a pine tree or something, it'll shoot up and blot out the sun and then lose all its lower branches and you won't be screening the thing that you meant to screen. Yeah. Whereas American holly grows slowly, but it keeps all its low branches. Great screen and bird habitat. You'll get so many more birds in your yard if you have something like that. And say again, the one that where you can make your own black tea. Camellia sinensis. is that That's oh. tea camellia. It's related to the ornamental camellias that people grow. And it's a neat looking plant. The flowers are not nearly as showy, but and that plant likes a bit of shade too. So if you have a shady site, you'll still produce your tea leaves. Oh, and even, even if you don't have enough sun to ripen tree fruit. That's really exciting to me. <laughs> and I, you know, Mary Kingsley was one of those people in the 90s who got letters from the Homeowners Association. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Only for not spraying. Good for you. Good yeah. She wasn't even pl- doing anything crazy. She was just like, I'm not going to spray. Yeah. yeah. So our Homeowners Association where we lived, I had a rule that you had to have the lawn service come spray. Mm. And I simply did not do that. And I got phone calls and letters. And, and we had lots of nice songbirds and pretty clovers. And yeah. yeah. Everybody was mad about the dandelions. And I'm like, gosh, if people just knew like the value of the dandelion and why we have this industry that is out to kill it. It's just mind boggling. But to Emma's point about June of every year, speaking of visuals, everybody would start hanging out these horrible looking like Japanese beetle traps in their yard. Oh, yeah. And people would say to me, oh, don't you have Japanese beetle eating your everything? And no, because I don't spray and the birds all come into my yard. Because they don't get poisoned. (laughs) Yes. And little tiny permaculture lesson back in 1994. You were ahead of the curve. She's a visionary. I feel vindicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it it is interesting. I wouldn't have, like as a younger person that didn't think about these things. Yeah. I would have looked at a perfectly dark green lawn without a dandelion or a clover in it and thought, oh, why not? Maybe I'll go roll in that lawn or whatever. Now I look at it as a toxic environment. So I think if my perception of it can change with a little bit of knowledge, I think other people's can too. Right. Have you noticed too, there's this company, True Green Chem Lawn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It used to be True Green Chem Lawn and they've decided that Chem Lawn is not a great branding word anymore. So I saw for a while their trucks were there. It said True Green still. And then there was white paint (laughs) over the top of where it used to say Chem Lawn, but you could still see it. You could still see it through. (laughs) And then they wrote over the top of that eventually grow greener. Like, oh. so it was like true green, grow greener. 
instead of triggering chemlon, chemlon. but it's still the same tank. It's yeah, the same it's the same yes. stuff. That's so misleading because Grow Greener makes you think it's green. It's well, it's more eco. Just another example of greenwashing, and yeah, right. they wanted well, to it rebrand. Is literally green. Yeah, it is literally <laughs> it, It's very green. <laughs> it's so <laughs> green. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. We're very innovative human beings, and. There must be a way for that industry to pivot in a way that is more regenerative, I'll say again. Mm. I hope that this knowledge, these concepts, like kind of reach into the collective consciousness, if you will, enough that people will start demanding this sort of thing. Yeah, that seems to kind of be the block between, you know, we have all these ways we know we can do things better. So why don't we just do them? And it's like, well, we have all these trucks and trained people and jobs doing it this one way. So it'd be really hard to change all that. And it's kind of like, that's kind of getting old. I asked a similar question last week when we were talking to Justin at Thrive Lot and said, couldn't these landscaping companies pivot into this sort of food forest thing? And he goes, no, because the machinery is geared towards the typical, you know, you roll in, you know, you mow, you clip, you blow, and you're gone. It's not about nurturing existing plants and bringing little trees along and all the things you just described a minute ago. So yeah, I agree with you. The machinery isn't always suited. People are smart and adaptable. And I have a few public sites in in parks and on school sites of forest gardens where I'm assisting with maintenance at this point and and with installation. The crews that I've used for these installation projects, these are people that have worked in landscape their whole careers. It's certainly not rocket science installing a forest garden. It does require learning some things about fruit tree care to take care of that versus a strictly ornamental landscape. But, you know, the the folks at Hyattsville Public Works who are taking care of the Emerson Street Food Forest, for example, they have adapted or found the people that they need to take good care of that place. It's been a learning curve. There's been a few plant casualties along the way, but I think people are adapting. And, and a lot of times it is the same crew that have added an extra set of knowledge to their toolkit. Like, sure, they still know how to edge a bed and yeah. mow the grass and blow away the leaves, but they also know how to, you know, do a little winter fruit tree pruning or, or whatever. So I'm hopeful in this regard. And additionally, this year, it's pretty exciting. We have um, Langley Elementary School Food Forest oh, in nice. DC. And I hired a guy who just came through my permaculture class to go down there once every other week and help maintain the place. And he's been doing a tremendous, like a great job solving problems, taking care of the tiny little food producing plants that we have in there. Oh, those kids are so lucky. They're learning so much. Isn't that an exciting concept? School food forests. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it's a great place for it, especially when you have on-site people who, like a, a little bit older one that I did is, uh, that I designed is Capital City Public Charter School Food Forest. And they have this wonderful person there, Ryoko Yamamoto, who is great at bringing the kids into the food forest and letting them go a little bit crazy as kids do and just enjoy the food and learn from it that way. Like there's nothing like that immediate interaction, especially with the kids to help spread the the knowledge of this. Yeah. And to get them excited about even the idea of it and taking it forward into their lives. And yeah, we had in the 90s when my kids are in elementary school, we had a green school. That was just kind of the beginning of environmental education. It was a lot of fun. And boy, the kids just eat it up. They just love it. Growing worms and all that kind of thing. I'm sure environmental education has come a long way in the last 20 years, 25 (laughs) years now. I love that story of the elementary school and what you just said about having some 
landscape people that you've been working with able to pivot into this. So are there any other over the past 12, 15 years, bigger breakthroughs or accomplishments or things that make you feel really proud and good about progress being made? Like what's sticking? Yeah. Well, I feel lucky that I've just gotten a new contract from DDOT, which is... No way. Yeah. We've done two. Okay. So DDOT is the DC Transportation Department. Wow. And they have the Urban Forestry Division underneath them. They take care of all the street trees, hundreds of thousands of street trees. Yeah. And they've funded the creation of two food forests so far. Those are the two that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. Langley and Capital City. So I've just received a new contract to do more food forests with them. So (gasps) that's so so exciting. Yeah, it seems to be going well. And they've done a great job identifying partner sites. So it's like maybe DDOT owns the land all around the city block because they own Mm -hmm. some of the land all along all the streets where they grow their trees. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the one uh, around Capital City Public Charter School, we planted the garden partly on DDOT land partly on on the school land the kids are in the garden all the time and and so i'm excited about that's so encouraging because it's literally the government right yeah dc government yeah my partner is a civil engineer with well it's a private firm but he works ddot a lot and doe and stuff Oh, so. wow. You'll have oh, to cool. tell him about yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. If we have any drainage issues and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a water guy. Some, and I'll tell him some. about you. I'm understanding more now. A lot of the work is with these contracts is it's kind of like who you know and you get your architect and your engineer and your... So I'll we should go to, to the next brunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So do you see people being able to, oh, like, oh, there's a peach. I can eat that, you know, or somebody giving a peach to their little child as they're walking through a park or something. Is that... A vision for the future? Is that something that could happen? It can. It requires a lot of engagement. Yeah. When I was on site taking measurements for a, a new, this is the Emerson Street Food Forest. We noticed that there's a couple of trees there full of plum. So the guy that was helping me, we both climbed up in the plum tree and we were sitting and eating. And the kids in the house next door, like literally right next to these plum trees were like, they came out and they were playing around and they're like, hey, what are you doing? And we're like, <laughs> we're eating these plums. They're great. And they're like, Gross. Yeah, um, and, and then the, and they came back a little later, and they're like, "Give me some of those." So we gave, and so we gave them some plums, and they tried them, and they're like, "Those are gross." <laughs> and then a little while later, they came back and like, "Give me some more of those." <laughs> but like they had, I mean, they lived their whole lives right next yeah. to these plum trees and never tried a plum. Yeah, yeah. Because we live in a weird time where we're very disconnected, going back generations in many cases. From our agricultural roots where you mm-hmm. eat plums from yeah. a plum tree if there is one. Yes. So we put in this food forest right next to that location. There are all kinds of fruits growing in. And I hear, well, usually when I go visit there, there are a few people around. So there's an auto repair shop right next door. And the guy there told me, like, so there's a very productive persimmon tree in there at this point. And he's like, I'm going to come out and put a sign here that says for research purposes only. <laughs> So that nobody else takes these persimmons because he loves them. Yeah. Um, but but uh, I mean, he's joking. <laughs> uh, they report that, you know, local kids are eating the strawberries at this point, the sorrel, the mulberries. Oh. It happens gradually, but a huge part of it is those people, not that are taking care of the plants, but those people that go put flyers on the houses of all the people in the neighborhood and invite them to events in the forest garden and tell them over and over and over again what it is and that it's for them and come on, help yourself mm-hmm. because it takes a lot of doing. 
Yeah. And you also, you know, have to be careful about like kids think, oh, they can just pluck anything and pop it in their mouth. If it's a pretty shiny berry, you know, you don't want that either. So there's a lot of education that goes into like eating things directly from the wild. And back to the persimmons again. Boy, I think persimmons have been the theme mm. of this talk. Recently had a visit from our grand niece and nephew, ages six and nine, and they don't have a very wide range in their diet. Yeah. Like probably like most six and nine year olds. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But sure. they discovered, I told them they could eat the persimmons and oh boy they love that and I was so pleased I mean and they would run out in the yard and pick them and everything and that was I thought wow that's great <laughs> they're eating straight from yeah, the tree totally. and they're so delicious I was very careful to tell them if they're unless they're really really squishy you don't want to eat them because mm, then you, you really it learn the true. lesson of unripe <laughs> with a persimmon given everything we've talked about all of the problems all of the issues all of the huge cultural shifts that would have to happen in order for things to be going really more in the direction that we're hoping they will. Do you believe that individual consumer decisions is enough? Or, I mean, obviously it's a systemic thing, but do you think that it's like the message of just change your own personal actions is going to be enough to course correct? Yeah, could individuals create enough demand that the system will change? Like, does it change from the bottom up? What do you think? I find that a lot of people that want to grow their own food also want to share that food with their friends and neighbors. And that's what gives me the most hope. There's some people that are just content to grow for their own family, which is fine, but so many of them are outward looking and looking to help out and spread the joy of this. There's just been a series of open houses amongst my former permaculture students where, you know, over a series of weekends, you could go visit a variety of these different sites and see what everybody's doing, which I find really fun and exciting. And Mm -hmm. so it it does strike me as tiny compared to the industrial food system, certainly, and like a, a long way to go. But you do see movements where they do begin tiny and then they reach these stages of critical mass and then they get going. For example, like when I wanted to go to landscape design school in 2004, most of the programs that I looked at, they weren't really talking about ecology, not to the the degree that I wanted them to, because that was my first priority. Only the Conway school up in Massachusetts was doing this. They're a hippie school going back to the seventies. You know, they've been about this forever, but most of the mainstream programs were not. Now I give guest lectures at University of Maryland in the landscape architecture school and soils class and whatnot on the regular and, and, the, and the programs really are pushing ecology and even cool. getting to pushing agroecology and urban farming and all of this. So that to me looks like a startling change over yeah. the last couple of decades. And it gives me hope that we can similarly make inroads into having agroecology play a larger and larger role in our food system. Many problems to be solved in that direction, but the movement's growing. So I think the movement will do that. Oh, that's so encouraging. It is. It's so exciting too. And so here's a question we ask all of our guests and you can answer it any way you want. What does the good dirt mean to you? Well, I immediately think of healthy forest soil full of mycorrhizae. Mm. The forest community, so much of it is underground. In fact, probably more biomass and more biodiversity is underground than is above ground. And It's all mediated by this amazing network where if one plant has an excess of nitrogen or phosphorus or or just carbohydrate, the mycorrhizal network will move that stuff around and feed all the other plants in the understory to a certain extent. In that interconnected, greater than the sum of its parts kind of thing is so exciting for me. And, And recreating that blanket of soil, that blanket of life across the region where it's been so hacked up and destroyed is very exciting for me. You can see it start to happen in a in a place like the cornfield where I'm now growing into a forest garden. It's not deep, rich forest soil yet, but it's it's on its way. 
the trees and the mycorrhizae are starting to make that happen. Every time we plant a tree, we take a scoop of soil out of the forest and put it in the hole with the tree, just as an inoculum, because there may be some biota in that in that scoop of soil that can help repopulate the pretty dead soil mm-hmm. of the tilled landscape. Yeah. So those are some of the things that it means to me. Oh, that's so, so awesome. That also creates a beautiful metaphor to the interconnectedness and the spreading of all the goodness throughout this huge network. I love that. Yeah. Above the ground. network too. A lot of what you are doing, you're the mycorrhizal network of the culture <laughs> by oh, spreading information. So. Thank you. That's why we call ourselves the good dirt because we want to spread all the good fertile information around so it can spread across the land. Something you just said, where are you getting these trees? Yeah. Are they local? Are you buying them? I have ordered trees from a lot of different nurseries at this point. Okay. A lot of them are harder to find, but I do keep a list of my favorite nurseries, which I can also share with anybody that is interested. And at this point, the cool thing is that the forest garden is propagating its own plants to a certain extent, sometimes with help from me and sometimes with none at all. So that has been really fun to see. But yeah, some of like if you want to get yourself Yalpon holly or a very productive species of native oak or whatever, you won't necessarily find that at your local garden center. Yeah. Right. We've been trying to do more natives on our property and um, it's hard to find these things. And we find that there's little, maybe the county or some native plant society or something will have these sales. You probably heard of this and they'll publish online, you know, here are the plants that we have and you can call this Sunday between 12 and 2 and reserve these plants and they go like that. Like you have to yeah. be really on it. And we bought a bunch of stuff this spring and again this fall. And then it's kind of funny. This is funny. This is a good forest garden story. So my husband, you know, he'll get out and mow the pony paddocks periodically. And I had noticed a lot of field yarrow growing in this section. So I said, leave this alone. I I don't mow this because I want to get some of this stuff out. And so he hadn't mowed it in about a year. And I was out there. It was a good transplanting day and I was going to move some of that stuff and I saw a whole bunch of those plants that we had bought (laughs) growing out there in the field just because he didn't mow. Huh. I thought, well, that's, (laughs) duh. I mean, these are (laughs) native things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and you do need to bring plants in from time to time, even like, uh, but yeah, the seeds are often there and and just stopping mowing. You're amazed what can uh, arise. Yeah, and I said, okay, from now on, we're going to mow like some wide paths for the ponies. There's only four of them. They have plenty to eat. We don't have to mow the whole dang five acre thing. And um, we're going to have a native plant garden like right here and not do anything <laughs> except yeah. not mow. <laughs> and, you'll get, and you'll get so many cool species of butterfly even above what you already have probably. Well, I have um, a garden where I already do all this stuff. But I mean, what a obvious thing. Even for me, I talk about this stuff all the time. It was an aha moment. Yes. I love those. It (laughs) it can take, it can take a long time to percolate. Sometimes I have so many of those uh, myself. You know, the goldenrod that we're paying like $10 a pot for these. Well, I don't have to look anywhere for, I don't have to buy goldenrod is the point, the bottom line. (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah. And that, in terms of a change, there's way more native plant nurseries than there were certainly 20 years ago, That which, which has been fun. Around our region, there's Nature by Design in Alexandria, yes. American Native Plants up in Joppa, above Baltimore. There's Chesapeake Natives, which is based out of Rosaryville State Park. And then there are others. Those places are, it used to be so much harder to get native plants. Yeah. That's been a neat thing to see. Is there anything else you feel like you would like to leave our audience with or that you want people to understand about the work that you're doing? 
Sure. Well, just to remind everybody that this is a forest that we live in, even though we don't see it a lot of the time. So, and it has so much to offer us. And that can look so many different ways, depending on who you are and what your goals are. Like I know nothing about fiber or making clothes, for example, but there are people that do that or that, that do dyeing of fabric, like, like you ladies do, which is wonderful. So there's just, there's a role for everybody in learning how to appreciate and work with this forest ecosystem that we find ourselves living in. And there's so much joy in that. And so, yeah, if you need any help uh, getting involved, feel free to stop by Forested. Yeah. <laughs> over over, over here in Bowie, glad to come meet you and uh, show you the forest garden or, or see what you, what skills you have, because it's like, it's way more than any individual people can do. So you need, you need a lot of people yeah. uh, to, to make this happen. And can people follow you on social media or sign up for a newsletter or anything like that? Yep. I have a, a news letter that I only send out about one a month and that will tell you when we have our forest to table dinners, our permaculture classes or volunteer opportunities, things like that. Uh, we have a YouTube channel that we're working on uh, where there's, you can get a tour of the forest garden, you know, on YouTube, if you can't make it over to Bowie and we're on Instagram too. Christine takes awesome pictures and puts them on there. Is it at forested on Instagram? It's forested.us. That's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Lincoln. This is so fun. And I learned so much. Love this conversation. Thanks again. I enjoyed it too. Thanks. Thank you so much, Lincoln, for being with us today and for being such an inspiration. So interesting. Yes. And thank you, Good Dirt listeners, for being here this Friday and every Friday and for following Lady Farmer on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer and for joining us in the almanac at ladyfarmer.com slash almanac. And we just are so grateful to be here and thank you for continuing to show up and listen and download and subscribe and please share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it and you think that you know someone who would enjoy it we really appreciate it and we'll see you next week 